You know, we often are fascinated by the last words that a person will offer before he or she dies. I think we have this sense that when someone knows they're about to leave this life behind, that their final words just might be very profound. That's not always the case, of course. And sometimes people don't know that what they're saying will be their last words because they don't know that their death is imminent. Whatever the case, the last words of famous people often are written down. And they can range from the profound to the ironic to the humorous. For example, there was the great jazz drummer, Buddy Rich, one of my favorites. And as Buddy Rich was being prepped for surgery, the scrub nurse wanted to find out if there were any medications that he might be allergic to and might have a reaction to. So she said, is there anything you can't take? And he said, oh yeah, country music. (laughs) Those turned out to be his last words. Hmm. Some other last words. Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France, was executed during the French Revolution. And as she was being led to the guillotine, she accidentally stepped on the toes of the executioner. And she turned to him and said, pardon me, sir. Interesting. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, died at age 71 in his own garden of a heart attack. And he turned to his wife. He said, you are wonderful. And then he collapsed and died. And then Stephen Jobs, the founder of Apple, as he drew his final breaths, said, Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I wonder what he saw. (laughs) And then there are some final words that point us right toward God. William Henry Seward was a governor, a senator, and the secretary of, of state for the U.S. during the American Civil War. And his final words came straight from the Bible. Love one another. Great final words. Well, I was was pondering this, this fascination that we have with the last words of famous people, and it got me thinking about Jesus. Got me thinking about His last words. And Jesus is a unique case because He has more than one set of final words. His first final words are spoken while he's dying on the cross. Humanly speaking, that should be it. But but since he conquered death and rose from the grave, Jesus has a second set of final words. And these final words are spoken after his resurrection, just before he returns to heaven. We find those last words of Jesus recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1-11. And here's the setting. He's about to leave his disciples for good. And he wants to be sure that they understand the unfinished business that lies ahead. Jesus will use this last moment of face-to-face interaction to reinforce what he previously told them. The Holy Spirit is coming. The Spirit is coming with power, and the Spirit is coming with a specific purpose in mind. That's what we want to understand this morning. Now, in a moment, we're going to have the Bible passages on the screen for you, but not yet. What I'd like you to do right now is just listen as I read this passage. Just listen and let God speak to you 
through his word. The book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back. Will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. The author of what I just read is Luke, a first century physician. He became a follower of Jesus Christ and a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And God used him to make two very important contributions to our Bible. He wrote the book of Luke, which is a biography of Jesus, and he wrote the book of Acts, which is a history of the early church. And I think it's possible to, to view the book of Acts in some ways as a biography of the Holy Spirit because it's in Acts that we see the Holy Spirit at work in and among and through his people. And at the outset of this book, Luke begins with some introductory information and we learn in verse 1 that these books were written to a friend of his named Theophilus. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And now he's continuing the story. But as I think about this, I am fascinated because Luke was so concerned that this one man, a friend named Theophilus, would get connected to Christ that he wrote two lengthy books. He told Theophilus all about Jesus and all about the history of the early church. He invested a huge amount of time and energy so that Theophilus could get connected to God through Jesus. Luke was concerned about the soul of his friend. And as I ponder what Luke did, I find myself asking this challenging question. Do I have that same level of concern for my friends who are far from God? How much time and effort am I willing to invest so that people I know can get connected to Jesus? Luke invested a lot. 
his example should encourage us and inspire us and cause us to wrestle with those questions. Are we concerned for the souls of the people we know? Now, as Luke continues telling the story of Jesus, he wants Theophilus, his friend, to know that Jesus is unique because Jesus conquered death. And that's not just wishful thinking. It is a fact because after Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to his disciples in various ways and at various times for 40 days. And throughout that period, the message of the resurrected Jesus was the same message that Jesus proclaimed during his three-year ministry. As Luke tells us here, he spoke about the kingdom of God. Telling people about the kingdom of God always was the top priority of Jesus. He introduced his ministry with these words, the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this good news. And through his life and through his ministry, Jesus began to usher in this new kingdom. And yet now as he prepares to return to heaven, the work of the kingdom obviously is far from over. And that's why Jesus is going to equip his followers to tackle the unfinished business of God. They will be equipped to carry on after he's gone. And that's what Dr. Luke tells us about in the next two verses, verses 4 and 5. He told them, to wait. Now think about this. As this, these words are spoken, it's already been 40 days since Easter, 40 days since the resurrection. The disciples are hanging out there in Jerusalem, having these various interactions with Jesus, but they don't live in Jerusalem. They're just waiting because Jesus told them to wait. And now he says, wait some more. It's not yet time for the Spirit to come. Jesus wants them to wait in order to build a sense of anticipation because the coming of the Holy Spirit will be revolutionary. His presence will change everything because when He shows up, as Jesus says here, the Spirit's going to baptize the followers of Jesus. This is a very distinct thing. It means they're going to be immersed in and enveloped by and filled up with the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit will transform how the people of God live in connection with God. Now, this is not new information for the disciples. Jesus talked at length about the Holy Spirit on the night before he died, and he reminds them of that here in verse 4, saying, you heard me speak about this. During that earlier conversation, which we looked at in some detail a few weeks ago, Jesus described the ministry of the Spirit in a variety of ways. He said that the Spirit would be their teacher, which means He would help them understand and live out God's truth. The Spirit would be their comforter, which means He would help alleviate their feelings of distress and grief. The Spirit would be their advocate, which means He would be on their side and give them the words so they could effectively defend their faith. Jesus tells them that when they follow the leading of the Spirit, they can experience peace. Peace in the midst of life's circumstances because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of peace. These things were true for the disciples. 
They're true for us. And they are just some of the great benefits of living as a spirit-filled follower of Jesus. And yet, they're not the primary reason why God sends His Spirit. The primary purpose of the Spirit, His primary ministry in your life and mine, is to equip us to faithfully represent Jesus to other people in this world. And we see that so clearly here in verses 6 through 8. Luke continues and he describes the disciples asking this question and they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. And notice these locations, Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the heart of this passage as Jesus equips and commissions his followers. And also we need to recognize that these are the very last words Jesus will offer in this life. And he's telling the disciples that some unfinished business lies ahead. Unfinished business of the kingdom of God. But first Jesus has to clear up a huge misunderstanding about the nature of the task. And this misunderstanding becomes painfully apparent by the question that the disciples ask in verse 6. You see, the disciples are focused on the wrong kingdom. Jesus has spent three years talking about God's kingdom in great detail and his followers still don't get it. He introduced his ministry by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. He explained the values of the kingdom of God in his sermon on the mount. He often would begin a parable with these words. The kingdom of God is like, and then he'd tell a story. You see, every parable is a vivid illustration about life in the kingdom of God. Here's the problem, though. Every time Jesus says, kingdom of God, his disciples hear kingdom of Israel. They're not hearing him correctly. Instead, they're hearing what they want to hear. You see, based on this question, it's clear they want Jesus to restore the kingdom to Israel. And that's because they want to be free from Roman rule. They want to be the premier spiritual nation in the world. But what Jesus has in mind for them is so much bigger and grander and better. He wants them to think beyond their nation and embrace the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom that encompasses both earth and heaven. That's why Jesus taught his followers to pray with these words, Father in heaven, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is something that we get a taste of in this life as we live by faith in Jesus, and then we're going to fully experience it in eternity when God makes a new heaven and a new earth and establishes his kingdom forever. That's what we're working toward. That's where our hope lies. But the disciples haven't caught it yet. And so Jesus tells them in verse 7 that they're asking the wrong question. And then he points them in the right direction with his last words recorded here in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is going to empower them to be witnesses for Jesus locally. That's Jerusalem. 
regionally, that's Judea and Samaria, and then globally to the very ends of the earth. And by this short, pithy statement, Jesus is telling them that God wants His kingdom to consist of believers from every nation and every tribe and every ethnic group and every language group. That is not going to be easy for these very Jewish disciples to grasp. It's not going to be easy for them to do. That's why they need the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is going to lead them into places like Samaria. Samaria, that region next door, full of people that the Jews love to hate. People that the Jews believe are unfit for God's kingdom. I hope you and I never look at anyone that way. You see, God wants the Samaritans to be invited into his kingdom, and it's up to the disciples to offer that invitation. So they need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to change the way they look at the world. The Holy Spirit is going to lead these disciples into cities full of, full of idol worshipers. Cities full of pagans. Cities where sexual immorality is rampant. In other words, all places that a faithful Jew would prefer to avoid. And yet the disciples will be impelled, empowered by the Spirit to go into those places with a life-changing message. And it won't be a message about the glories of Israel and the beauty of Jerusalem and the awesomeness of their temple. It's going to be a message about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God who proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. That's the good news. Because only God's kingdom can unite people in this broken and fractured world in which we live. message is about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so these last words of Jesus are amazing. And we need to recognize that Jesus is pushing these men far outside their comfort zones. And he's telling this little band of followers that it's now up to them to continue the unfinished business of proclaiming and building the kingdom of God. And clearly, clearly they can't do it on their own. However, with the guidance and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, they will be able to do everything Jesus asks of them and even more. So how do the disciples respond to these last words? Well, I think they're stunned by what he's just said. We don't have a verbal reaction recorded, but They just stand there in silence. In fact, they're even stunned into immobility because Jesus, after speaking these words, dramatically leaves them for the very last time. And that's what Dr. Luke relates to us here in verses 9 to 11. They're just standing there looking up and Jesus disappears. I'm not surprised that they continue to stand and look, wondering, is he coming back? 
And it's a logical thing for them to wonder because over the previous 40 days, he's disappeared and reappeared numerous times. They don't realize that this is the last, last time that they will see him in this life. And so as Luke records, God sends two men dressed in white, two angels actually, to clear things up. And the disciples learn that Jesus has been taken into heaven, so he's not coming back, at least not right away. However, he will come back someday. So they need to wait patiently for that day to arrive. In the meantime, they have a mission. They have a purpose given to them by Jesus. And in just 10 days from this moment, on a Jewish holiday called the Day of Pentecost, their waiting will be over. On that day, the Holy Spirit will arrive with power. It's a dramatic event that's recorded in our Bibles in the book of Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at that in some detail next week. And we need to understand what happens that day because it's a historic day. It's a day when God makes clear to everyone that everyone is invited into His kingdom. Meantime, wait. Wait a little bit longer. I don't know about you, but it occurs to me as I read all of this that a whole lot of the Christian life involves waiting. I think God often makes us wait to remind us that He's in charge of time and we're not. I think sometimes He makes us wait to slow us down because we can be very impatient and impetuous people. And I think sometimes He makes us wait because waiting often helps prepare us for those moments when He does choose to act. And so Jesus promises his disciples the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he makes them wait 50 days for that promise to be fulfilled. The angels promise that Jesus will return, and we've been waiting 2,000 years for that promise to be fulfilled. So we continue to wait, but we wait with hope, we wait with expectation, because we believe that it will happen. And we believe that when the time is right, Jesus will come back. Yet here is the important thing for us to understand as followers of Jesus. When God makes us wait, we never wait passively. We wait actively. And specifically as it relates to what Jesus says here, until he comes, you and I have a purpose, a God-given, Jesus-commissioned, Spirit-empowered purpose. We are asked to share the good news of Jesus Christ and His kingdom locally and regionally and globally. It's a mission that was given to these first disciples and it's passed on to every generation of God's people because the work of the kingdom is not yet complete. But we can do our part in our generation to carry that message of the kingdom and to enlarge it and expand it. And therefore, you and I need to rely on the power of the Spirit in our own lives as individuals so that we can represent Jesus wisely and well here in this community where we live. Three weeks ago, we spent some time talking about how we can be more effective at sharing the message of Jesus personally with the people around us. And if you missed that message, I encourage you to check it out on our website and listen in. But this morning, I want to talk not about our individual response to this mission, but how we respond together. 
because the life of faith is not something we do alone. It's something we do in community. And as a community of faith, there are so many things we can do together that will have a much greater impact than anything we could do individually. Every week, we take 13.5% of our weekly offerings and we invest them in a variety of outreach ministries, specifically to help us fulfill this mission we've been given by Jesus. We have flags hanging on the back wall of the auditorium to remind us of where we are investing. We're investing directly in missionaries and ministries in places like Kenya, Thailand, Indonesia, and Zimbabwe. We have the American flag hanging there for a couple of reasons. One is that we support some missionaries who are based here in the U.S., but they have a global ministry. They help to fulfill what Jesus says here, taking the message to the ends of the earth. And that flag's there for a second reason, to remind us that this place where we live is a mission field. The United States of America is the third largest unchurched nation in the world. And that means you and I have plenty of opportunities to talk about our faith with people who are far from God. And that flag also reminds us why it's important not just to individually share our faith here, but to invest in ministries that do that as well. That's why we invest in the campus ministry at the University of Oregon. It's why we support church planters who start new churches from scratch throughout the Northwest, churches that are specifically focused on reaching people who are far from God and getting them connected to Jesus Christ. It's vital for you and I to remember that every time we make a financial contribution to this church, we not only help to support our life together, but we're investing in local, regional, and global ministry. The ministry of the kingdom. The ministry of inviting people from every nation, every tribe, and every language group to get connected with Jesus and become part of the kingdom of God. And we summarize that ministry in our mission statement that's out there on the walls over the gym. We want to know Him and love Him and share Him. And we have the privilege of doing that together. Here's here's what really, really excites me. We're not a big church. But in the kingdom of God, effectiveness is not about size. It's about listening to the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, and doing our work in the power of the Spirit. And so even though we're a modest-sized church, together we are making an impact. And as we continue to let the Spirit of God guide us, we around the globe are helping to increase the citizenship of the kingdom of God. And that's a great reason to celebrate. We never can forget, though, we cannot do this in our own power. We only can do this because God, on the day of Pentecost, unleashed the Holy Spirit and poured His Spirit into His people. He gives us the power to represent Jesus individually and together and to change the world. I was thinking about this because this whole series has been leading up to the day of Pentecost, which takes place next Sunday. It's not a, not a holiday that we typically celebrate in the church, and I'm not sure why. 
because it is a transformative day. We pay a lot of attention to Easter, and we should, (laughs) because the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus was so vital for us. But the day of Pentecost is critical to the unfinished business of God. We often encourage people to fast and pray during Easter week, that week leading up to Easter Sunday. And we say, you know, this would be a good time to fast, to pray, to read the Bible some more, and to contemplate the meaning of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in your life. And I think this week would be another great time to do that. Because this is Pentecost week. We're leading up to Pentecost Sunday, which truly is a day that changed the world. It's the day when God fulfilled His promise and released His Spirit. It's a day when the mission of building the kingdom of God was delegated to the followers of Jesus. We need to celebrate the day of Pentecost because it's so vital in our purpose of carrying out this unfinished business of God. I want to encourage you to think about what you might do this week to make it a special spiritual season in your life. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fast a little bit. I'm going to skip a couple of meals and spend that time praying. I'm going to read this Bible passage here in Acts chapter 1 every day. And after I read, I'm going to pray that God will give me a fresh appreciation for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm going to ask God to empower me to be a vibrant witness for Jesus here. And I'm going to pray for every one of our missionaries by name and pray that God's Spirit empowers them to be vibrant witnesses for Jesus wherever they are. And I'm going to pray that we as a church never lose sight of our purpose. To tell people about Jesus and the kingdom of God. We're not a social club. We're the people of God. And we've been given the Spirit of God to tell people about Jesus, the Son of God, and the kingdom of which we're privileged to be a part. So what might God prompt you to make Pentecost week a special week in your life? I want to encourage you, ask God to show you how you can use the next seven days to experience more of the presence and the power and the purpose of the Holy Spirit.